Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, it's so good to see y'all here. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today or we haven't gotten to meet yet, my name's Brandon. I'm actually the director of music and liturgy here, and so normally I, I get the privilege of getting to lead us all in worship through the music and, and the liturgy that we do here week in and week out. But uh, today I, I get the privilege and the honor to preach and teach from this text again in First Peter, and, and I, as always, I'm really excited to do so with you all today as we work together to, to get at what Peter is telling us in this text, which I think there's a lot there for us. But before we begin, uh, I just ask that you please join me in prayer as we come before the Lord together. We ask that his spirit move through his scriptures. God Almighty, you are gracious loving and, and faithful and kind, and we thank you for that. We thank you for allowing us all to, to gather here and to, to sit at your feet, Jesus, and to worship your name. I pray that you'd be honored by the preaching of your word and that by it we all would be just eager to live just like you, to be just like you, to live transformatively in our communities, that we would be a blessing and that we would be faithful representatives of your kingdom. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we begin, I first want to ask you all to pull out a Bible, because you're going to need one. Uh, here at Grace Point Church, we love to say that we, we lead, preach, and teach from the Bible. And so if you don't have one today, you want a paper Bible, we have English and Spanish ones kind of scattered around the room on those tables by the walls. Those are a gift to you. It's yours to take home if you don't have one. If you want to follow along digitally, uh, you can download specifically the YouVersion app is the one that we use. We put all the sermon notes and texts on there. If you go to your profile, click events, Grace Point Church will pop up and it'll all be there for you to follow along. If, you're, if you've got your Bible out and you've got your app out or whatever you're using to follow along, please turn with me then to our text for today. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 45. You'll see it on the screen. It says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. I know that's not actually our text for today. But... <laughs> I, I read it first uh, because I, I actually believe that this is the foundational principle upon which Peter is seeking to draw from when he begins his concluding statement in this thought process that he's been carrying out over the past chapter. So I want to take the first portion of, of this message and, and spend it on these words of Jesus, that they come from his most historically recorded and remembered set of teaching. Uh, that is the Sermon on the Mount, because I, I believe that they're foundational to understanding what, what Peter is most channeling in this teaching and understanding him rightly. And so as long as we don't understand Jesus and what he's saying well, we won't get what Peter is encouraging us to in this text, because most of the time what the apostles teach is often built upon the oral tradition of what Jesus would have taught them, what they would have heard him say in the flesh. And so it's always good for us to have a good handle on our Lord's teaching as they inform all of the New Testament authors and what they have to say in regards to practicing what Jesus said. 
So as we begin with the words of our Savior, in, in these six verses, he makes this very concise and yet very layered argument. You'll see that with every verse that he adds on to, he gets just a little bit more controversial. He pushes the envelope just a little bit more as he loves to do. He says in verses 38, 39, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this is Old Testament law. It's found in the book of Leviticus, one of the books that have a lot of law codes in them for the Israelites. It's in chapter 24. But it's actually also found in in other, sometimes older law codes as well. It was a common practice around the time of the Israelites in the ancient Near East as a whole. And although it might sound brutal to, to some of us now, this, this practice actually it wasn't designed to encourage bloodshed. It was actually designed to prevent further bloodshed or, or prevent more bloodshed than was befitting of any given crime. See, it, it would have been common to, if someone punched your tooth out or gave you a black eye or stole something from your shop, to kill them for it. It would have been commonplace to do this before this eye for an eye law came into place. And so for its time in the ancient Near East, it was actually quite forward-looking and that it called for even retribution, not excessive punishments. An eye for an eye, not their life for your eye. But by the time of Jesus, though, physical penalties by and large, in the formal legal space at least, had been replaced by financial penalties. See, at this point, you could sue someone blind for stealing an apple from your store or for punching your tooth out way more than they deserve to be sued for. And Jesus knew this. And so what Jesus is prohibiting here isn't physical brutality per se, because at this point it kind of would have been a given. It was already in the legal sense abolished in the law of of the Roman culture. But he goes further here, as he often does, and he's he's getting it seeking seeking even retribution at all. What what he's telling us here is that Jesus is, is against getting even, by and large, because by citing this law to begin with, overturning it, He's telling us that getting even in in any capacity is not the way of the follower of Jesus because it isn't the way of of Jesus himself. Because what he's getting at with these examples by beginning with an eye for an eye, turning the other cheek, he's going to continue with the cloak and all of that. He's using these legal examples. He and his audience know to be wrong, right? Justifiably wrong. He isn't saying that someone slapping you is okay, and he's not saying that someone punching your tooth out or giving you a black eye or stealing from your store is is okay. In the wider culture, human beings worthy of of dignity, worthy of being called image bearers of God, they would have every, every justifiable right not to stand for this kind of treatment. This was not okay. And yet what Jesus is getting at is foundational to Christian life. See, what Jesus is getting at is this mindset and this attitude that ought to inform all of our interactions in the public square. And that is a mindset that refuses to insist on one's own individual rights, however legitimate they may be. Which, by the way, it's not incompatible with standing firm for the rights of others. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how we conduct ourselves individually and how we are treated in the public square. And so then he continues. He builds upon this. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And so for a bit of historical context here, the the tunic would have been your your less valuable kind of undergarment. 
But the cloak, it would have been a far more valuable outer garment. That not, If you were poor, not only were you wearing for aesthetic purposes, but also a lot of the times it was a vital tool for survival. It was keeping you warm and protected from the environment. You were oftentimes sleeping in this cloak. You needed it a lot of the times to live somewhat comfortably. And so because of this then, there are laws in the Old Testament, specifically in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. You can go and find them there. But regarding specifically this idea of, of taking someone's cloak and a legal way to do that, there's actually some strict prohibitions around it. Either you are prohibited from taking a person's cloak entirely, or there's some really strict regulations around it. Like if you're making a deal and you take a cloak as collateral, you have to give it back the next day. And so this was very strictly regulated. Again, we see Jesus go back to, to citing these things he knows are morally and legally wrong. His, his audience and himself as observers of Torah law would know that this would not be an okay thing to do for someone to just come in and take your cloak for no reason. It's a, a culturally objectionable act that you would have every legal right to protest against. He isn't saying you'd be wrong to, to not want to give this person your cloak. He's using, again, these objectively unjust examples to communicate this radical message of an unselfish attitude that followers of Jesus are to have, again, regarding their individual rights. And, and now he adds on to it their property. But if Jesus hasn't gotten under our skin yet with these first few verses, he's certainly going to now because in his next set of statements, he's going to get our rights being infringed upon by government officials. I, I know that sounds radical to us. I don't know what the Second or Fourth Amendments have to say about that, but it seems to me that Jesus certainly believes that if you're going to follow him, surrendering your own rights to an official rather than resisting the infringing of our rights is, is actually the way to do that. See, because he says in verses 41 and 42, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now here's what I mean by that. You're probably wondering where I'm getting that from. What's in view here when, when Jesus uses this very, very, it doesn't sound specific, but it is, specific phrase forces you to go one mile. What he's thinking of here is, in fact, this very common Roman practice of commandeering civilian labor for their purposes, basically coming around and forcing you to work for them for, for no pay or anything, commandeering your labor in the territories that they occupied. And now the Jewish people, his majority audience, the, the, you know, the people of God with this personal relationship with Yahweh, their king, they would have been and, and were, of course, deeply opposed to this sort of drastic infringement upon their rights at the hands of, of the government, especially a Gentile one. And I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we be the same, right? No, no one wants to have their rights infringed upon by a government, especially if they are, you know, insert party here, I'm not going to get into that. That's between y'all and God. But whoever we don't like, you know, and, and the people of God here would have been deeply against this sort of thing. And Jesus knows that. But again, he's speaking that this radical message about the attitude and the mindset of his followers being one that holds loosely to one's individual rights. It's as simple as that. More specifically, it's, it's a mindset that doesn't allow the sort of tribalism or us-against-them mentality that would lead to some anarchy-style government resistance. Now, for us, as, as you know, these freedom-focused rights-entitled, in many ways, Americans, 
And, and again, thanks be to God that we have these rights and these comforts afforded to us by the country in which we live. But the Israelites did as well. The Israelites, by their Torah law, the holy scriptures of their God, had many rights given to them, and Jesus knows this. Examples like the right to your highly valuable cloak, the right to not be unjustly punished, or to seek some sort of even retribution. All of these laws were asserted rights given to these people. Every legal right to stand up for yourself. And yet Jesus says, by using these examples specifically, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, you aren't going to be more concerned about your rights than another's needs or well-being or what you can do for them. This isn't about what's fair here. It's about what is good and beautiful and merciful and kind. It's about what is like Jesus. But if that was a lot, wait for these last verses in 43 through 45, because this is where he really brings his point to a climax. He says, finally, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Man, how many times have we heard those words? This is love your enemies. And yet I, I, I can't help but feel that their true nature, their true weight, it eludes us daily. I, I know it does for me. I know these words, honestly, they only go so far in, in my heart before I begin to qualify them and make caveats for them and, and reasons why I, I don't necessarily need to do it in this or that given circumstance. But my hope is that we would really let them sink in for us, is what Jesus wants. And, and not as, you know, sometimes I hear this perfect standard of God that only Jesus can live up to because it's just here to convict us of how imperfect we are. Yes, a, a portion of that. But let's not be so quick to get there because there is a very real sense in, in that this is what is genuinely expected of us. See, often Jesus' radical words like this, either they, again, they get ignored as this perfect standard that we shouldn't even try following because that's just for God to do, or his words get sucked dry of, of, of any deep and meaningful and transformative message so that we can actually end up doing it in our own way. And by the time we do, it looks nothing like what Jesus actually said. But I, I want these words to, to really, with all of their weight, rest upon us as something Jesus really wants us to do, and not only wants us to do, but believes that as his royal priesthood, as his representatives, as people indwelt by the spirit of the living God, that we can actually do this. That we should be striving to, wanting to, desiring deeply to do just this. Because here is the linchpin of Jesus' message in this six-verse argument. Because without this, one might begin to, to believe that similar to a lot of Old Testament texts, this applied to how you treat your fellow people, the people of your tribe. In their context, Israelites, for us, maybe we might think of it as how we treat Christians. Unless we think this, this is reserved for our tribe, Jesus lays this statement upon us. And so first, we have to get to the statement that he says that his audience has heard. Love your enemy, hate your neighbor. Now, or sorry, <laughs> love your, what was it? <laughs> I got tied up. <laughs> love your neighbor, yeah, hate your enemy. There you go. Um, th this neighbor reference, it, it's from Leviticus 19. 
And, and in that context, actually, in that set of laws given to the Israelites, it would have actually meant by neighbor, your fellow Israelite. That would have been the context, and that's what they would have understood it as. And so this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to. But be, because of my love for the Old Testament and, and it being understood rightly and not having people think that the God of the Old Testament is some mean God, I just want to clarify something really quick. that The attitude towards outsiders in the Hebrew Bible was for sure one of, of differentiation, of, of resistance to their cultural norms maybe, but this hate language, hate your enemy, it's actually not a quote from the Old Testament. Hate your enemy is not there at all. And it would be very wrong to summarize the Old Testament's views regarding outsiders in that way. But what Jesus is getting at when he says that they've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, is the attitude of these zealous Israelites at that time. Because by this point, hundreds of years after this, these laws were given, these people seeking to be extra, you know, holy or something, forged from their readings of these Old Testament distinctions and resistances, their attitude towards outsiders at this point was, was exaggerated to something that the Old Testament did not condone. And that was an attitude of, of disdain and of constant and all-encompassing separations, of exclusion, of, of hatred. And so what Jesus is getting at here is an attitude amongst the Israelites that would say something like, Love your neighbor, the Israelite, who is for you. But of course, you, you don't need to love the outsider. And in fact, you ought to be despising and working against those who are against you. And yet God comes in and he turns the tables and he calls not just for a love for those who are for us, those who are in our community, those who are Christians per se. No, we can't just share this selfless care for humanity toward those who are pursuing righteousness or who believe in the same ideas of right and wrong as we do or who are kind to us or treat us even with the dignity that we all deserve as image bearers of God. Again, all good things. Jesus knows to be good and right, and yet he calls for, for a, a universal, indiscriminate, unbiased love. That is, that is love for everybody indiscriminately. And I, I want to quickly get at what love here means. What it definitely doesn't mean is that emotional warmth that we associated after a long relationship with someone that you really care about or have things in common with. That's, that's kind of how we define love nowadays. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Because honestly, this requires way, way too little discernible action in real time in the moment from us. It gives us too much time to think about how we feel about things. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus and the New Testament, when they, when they use this word love, are getting at is acting upon a person in such a way that they are benefited, that their greatest good is brought nearer to their feet by what you have done for them, be it spiritual, material, and or otherwise. And that's regardless of your emotions on the matter. They have nothing to do with it. You remember those examples, you know, getting your cloak stolen or getting slapped in the face? Jesus isn't asking you to, to be warm and, and fuzzy toward those people. He's not asking you to be happy about those things happening to you and to love them emotionally. No, he's, he's asking you to, to, instead of responding in kind, to actually act upon their good in a real discernible way in response to the evil that they've done to you. I think a really great example of what this looks like is, is in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke. It's this story when, when Jesus tells uh, this story about a man who is walking on the road and he falls along the side of the road. He gets trapped in a pit and he's very injured. And a bunch of people walk by him. First, a, a pagan priest walks by him. Doesn't help. Uh, a Jewish priest, a Levite, walks by him. Doesn't help. 
But then a, a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was this ethnicity of person that was widely regarded as the lowest of the low, hated among basically all the peoples. A Samaritan walks by. He sees this man in the pit, knowing that more likely than not, this person is against their very existence, and yet helps him. The, the Bible says he has compassion or feels pity on him. He feels moved by his plight. Not warm fuzzies, not that he particularly cared for him emotionally. Again, he, he knew that this man was probably against his very existence and way of life, and yet he helped. He did not know him. He did not have time to build up some sort of emotional connection. He just moved in and acted upon this image bearer of God's good and health and safety, and in so doing, he loved him. That, that's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. And now for, for the other term, this term enemy. What Jesus is getting at here when he says enemy is the far end of the scale of anyone you or I would actually want to and have a nice time loving or caring for. If we have a scale kind of on two sides of things, it goes from here to here, people I really enjoy loving, it's easy for me to love, people I, I can't stand, very hard to love. Over here you got, you know, the Christian that's in maybe your phase of life, you guys share a bunch of views, you agree on a lot of things, you have great conversation, it is easy to care for this person. Over here, maybe a, a Christian as well, but... Maybe in a different phase of life, they don't really get you, but you agree on enough things that like, you can have some solid conversations. You think they're really nice. You each respect one another. They're still pretty okay to love. You start getting on this side of the center. Maybe it's, maybe it's a non-Christian, but you guys agree. You like their moral compass. You both respect one another's dignity. Uh, you, you agree on some issues. Maybe you don't agree on Jesus, but you consider them enough to, to you know, care for them and want their highest good because they're not blatantly disrespecting you or offending your religion or your beliefs. Now, what Jesus is getting at when he says enemy is this guy over here, off the scale, actually. <laughs> yeah, th th this person, not, not neutrally acting towards you, but actively opposed to you. Actively opposed not only to God, but to you and to your very existence, your way of life, your religious beliefs, everything that you hold dear. That person, your enemy, that is the person Jesus is talking about here. The one actively pursuing to, to undermine the rights that we hold dear, or the one living in a way that our personal sensibilities might take offense to, or the one standing at the rallies that we think are ridiculous, or marching in the protests that we think are ungodly. Those people, anyone that we could possibly see as an enemy, seek their good, Jesus says, and don't even think about it. Just seek humanity's good. Let that be the default posture of your heart to simply desire to indiscriminately seek humanity's welfare. Jesus clarifies, if we have any questions about it, the, the universality of this love by invoking the fact that we're children of God and we are to reflect his character. See, when he says, so that you may be sons of your father, what he's getting at is, is that children reflect the character of their father. And so God's children bear his character and are to act upon it. And so what is his character? Well, in this instance, Jesus says that it's one of an overflow of grace and mercy upon all of his creation, seen here in the example of how God bestows his natural blessings on everyone, indiscriminately, doesn't even think about it, and relates this to how we are to love and act upon the good of everybody and not even think about it. We all go to sleep. We all wake up. God is gracious. The sun and its life-giving presence, without it, we would all die. It rises on the evil and the good. 
In their farming culture, the rain would have been outrageously important to their economic welfare. The rain that helps them live, it falls on the just and the unjust. God blesses all in that way indiscriminately. And this is the example that Jesus uses to describe how we are to love. Now, that is everything preloaded into the mind. Peter, you know, unfortunately we don't. He would have had a, a front row seat to this when Jesus said it. That's all the stuff that he's got preloaded in when he begins to write these messages in his letter. And so he begins in 1 Peter verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 8. And now that I have, now that we have this understanding of Jesus' words, I don't think it'll take too long to unpack what Peter is now saying from his teacher's teachings. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So he begins his conclusion now to, to this thought that he's had over the past chapter, and it's going to go in, he finishes it in our next week. He begins with this list of traits, foundational to, to doing everything that he's admonished us to in the past couple chapters. He gives us a, another identity statement. See, this is what it means to be the royal priesthood spoken of in chapter 2, verse 9 of this same letter. That, there two, that statement and this one are two sides of the same coin. He begins and ends this section in the same way by reminding us of who we are in Jesus he turns his focus back in on us and how we as Christians are to relate to one another first, foundationally, before we can start relating to the world around us. And so he begins with unity of mind. Now this actually, it isn't about agreeing on every single little thing. This actually would be a reference to, to a cultural sense of, of like-mindedness that referred to a common heritage of faith or ethical traditions. And this type of like-mindedness would have been very valued in Roman culture. But the way Peter invokes it here, it's in such a way that it actually calls them to reject the religion and the ethical systems that informed their former ways of life, the ways that they inherited from either their ancestors or the culture around them, whether the zealous Jew or, or the Roman Gentile, and to instead embrace the teachings of Jesus. It's this type of unity of mind, then, that was and is foundational to, to a worldwide community of Christians from every tribe, tongue, and nation joining together to follow Jesus. That's the only way it happens when we have that sort of unity of mind. Next he says, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. I group those together because they all kind of get at this definition of, of love we went over from Jesus. It's, it's to have sympathy, to have compassion, to first seek to put yourself in the shoes of another human being, but then moving forward, acting upon that to have brotherly or, or familial family love on them because of that compassion. And now, what, what is family love? Well, a piece of that is love, this acting upon someone's good without regard for your own emotions or feelings about the manner like we talked about. But Peter adds this layer of, of family for one another, for each other, us in this room. See, because in a healthy family system, mothers and brothers and sisters and parents, children to their parents, we all feel obligated by some unspeakable urge in our bodies to act upon the greatest good of those who are related to us. A lot of the times we can't even explain it, but for a mother to her child, she needs to see their highest good come about. That is how Peter calls us to feel toward our family in Christ, because that is, in fact, how he feels towards us. 
He's, he's bound to pursue the highest good for his people who he loves, and so we are to be the same way as well. Finally, he says, a humble mind. This church is, is what Paul actually is getting at about Jesus when he says in Philippians 2, chapter, verses 3 through 5, And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is the humble mind of our Savior, to to count others more significant than ourselves. Now, I've heard it said, and I'm sure you all have as well, recently, that uh, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, I, what that sounds like to me is, is that this moral, therapeutic, self-help kind of talk has kind of tainted what the humility of Jesus actually looks like, because what it seems to me from this text, and many others like it, is that it, it is, in fact, thinking less of yourself. It is, in fact, thinking... I am, I am no more worthy of, of dignity or honor or respect or blessing or kindness or comfort or anything else I could possibly want. I'm no worthy of these things than this human being standing right in front of me. And in fact, I'm sure that they are, are more worthy than I am of it. And because of that, I'm going to act to see if I can bring even a little piece of what they most desire to their feet by how I can, I can love and act upon them well. Because I know them to be worthy of it far more than I am. And so I'm going to look to see if I can get it for them before I can get it for myself. That is the mind that holds loosely to to one's own rights and considers those of another more highly. That is this, this family love acted upon from a humble mind. And it's the only way that if we are to be a, a light to the world, we, we first must be a light in our own house, acting like this toward one another. Because if we can't be like this toward one another, how, how are we going to do it with people who don't agree with us? We have to first be practicing this in the church, considering others more significant than ourselves. But... Lest we turn back in and think that this way of life is only for our brothers and sisters, Peter makes a quick turn outward like Jesus. He continues now to, to the ones outside, to the ones who would not think this way maybe, who don't pursue unity of mind or humility in the way that we do, those who would be opposed, who would do evil to us. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now this first piece, this is that radical, that love of Jesus that we spoke of in his sermon, right? It sounds a lot like love your enemies, that you may be sons of your father. Instead of that, Peter is now saying, don't repay evil for evil, but bless so that you may receive a blessing. It's a very similar format. But what Peter's kind of getting at with this very active language of on the contrary, bless, is he's reminding us that this isn't passive aggression, This is not just gritting your teeth and staying silent and just letting people be mean to you. This is acting rightly toward your enemies in response to that. Then rather of being passively hostile, because that is what Jesus did. See, we we read in the accounts of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion that before his accusers, Jesus was silent. It's actually a really important and and distinct aspect of all the prophecies about Jesus when he was going to be crucified, that he would be silent. But 
he didn't just absorb the insult and, and passively do nothing. He was silent, yes, but then proceeded to let his actions speak far louder than any words he could have ever said because he was silent and then he died for the ones accusing and mocking and shaming him. That is exactly what he is getting at here, Peter is getting at here is that we are to, yes, not only have the self-control to not repay evil for evil, but we are to have the will to then also bless on the contrary of what they have done, because that is what Jesus did. He received the evil of the people. He didn't repay it back, but on the contrary, he blessed by giving his life for those very people. Silence, of course, it's a given. We can all be passive if we want to, but not only this. It's acting rightly, seeking those people's good by our actions and and not just our words, not even our emotions, but this active blessing, seeking what God desires for them on his behalf as his representatives. But this this, uh, obtain language, so that you may obtain a blessing, in, in this particular translation, it isn't my favorite because a lot of other translations translate the word here as inherit. Because Peter's not saying that you do this so that you may obtain something that you don't already have. And it kind of makes it sound that way, that you're earning some sort of blessing by behaving in this way. Because this word that Peter uses, the Greek word, is kleronomeo, which has the primary definition of, of to receive as an inheritance or to partake in one's portion, something that's already theirs. And so we know that an inheritance is, is a gift given for one's children. And it's always given, never earned. And so Peter isn't saying, you know, do this and earn a blessing. He's saying, by doing this, you partake in the blessing that God has bestowed upon you. Because the blessing here, it's important that we know what he's talking about. The blessing is the life of Christ in you, working through you on behalf of God for others. This is the blessing that he's getting at. It's the ability to lay down your life for another human being. That is the gift that you get by following Jesus. You get to do just like he did, to live this blessed and beautiful life. But although he's saying it's not earned, that it's, it's, a, it's given to you as an inheritance. What Peter is stating is that although it isn't earned, those who actively refuse, who resist, who don't want to be like Jesus in this way, you're rejecting this inheritance that Jesus died to bestow upon you. Because again, this blessing is the life of Christ. And if you don't want to live that life, then by default you're saying no to doing so. Now finally, in, in verses 10 through 12, Peter concludes with these words. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As you'll immediately be able to tell if you're following along in any sort of Bible, these verses are lined up a little bit differently in there. That's because they're they're poetry, and more specifically, they're Hebrew poetry from the book of Psalms. Peter here, he's quoting from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, and he says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
And so Peter reinforces his call upon us by quoting this psalm which sets before us this ages-old offer, these two options, this fork in the road. Two options here at the center of Peter's argument that's going to go into our text next week. And they're the options that we've been given as a humanity from the beginning. See, Peter, by quoting this psalm in keeping with you know, his, his Old Testament roots, he lays before us good and evil. He gives us this list of traits, how we are to be, how we are to love our community. Back in the verses in chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 3, he said, here's how you're going to be in the government, in your homes, in your marriages. And then he lays before us good and evil. What the Bible from the beginning calls life and death. Because that's really what it comes down to. The majority of the scriptures as, as a whole, the scriptures call life and death, good and evil, everything that humans need to decide between. See, Moses presents these options to the Israelites in much the same way in the book of Deuteronomy. Peter's kind of following in this tradition. Because at the end of his delivery of the whole law to this new generation of Israelites, He's just told them, you know, every minutia, every little circumstance, every law, how they are to obey it, how they are to act. And yet when he summarizes everything that he's done, he says that what he's done is this. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, he says, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules... Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. This time, though, Peter presents these options not to to the fallen humanity, not to the rebellious Israelites, but rather to the royal priesthood of God. Peter is is presenting these options to the risen people that God, that Jesus himself died for. We have our perfect representative, Jesus, who has gone before us, who has obeyed the commandments, who has loved the Lord your God and walked in his ways. We receive these words now from Peter, not in fear that we might fail, not afraid that our God might forsake us because he's shown then and shows now that he never will. We receive these now with hope, knowing that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that Jesus has gone before us and done it all on our behalf, that he gave it all for us. That is our good news. That is our eternal security, our blessedness, our assured hope is in the work of Jesus. And that is the new context that these options of good and evil now have. But it doesn't free us, the text says, from the consequences of a sinful disposition. See, you see, when God says in Deuteronomy, you shall surely perish, in this specific text, he is in no sense talking about some eternal punishment, some post-life spiritual thing. No, he, he's very practically telling them, you're going to die if you do this. You are walking in the ways and the paths of death. Things are not going to go well for you or your people. You and your people will suffer. You, you, this will not be good for you. You will not flourish. You will not thrive. You will not represent me well if you choose to live in this way. And so what Peter is communicating in this whole text, by first reminding us of, of our identity, 
that we already have in Jesus, of assuring us of this inheritance that he died to present to us as a gift, and yet presenting us with these options of, of good and evil, what he's saying is this. You are a child of God. God loves you. He is for you. In fact, you have been named royal priest. And if in light of that, you choose to live in, in resentment, to, in, to revile, to repay evil for evil, to live not like Jesus, but like the world, God's presence in your life does not free you from the hurt and the pain that you will cause others and yourself. Suffer for righteousness' sake, the Bible tells us, not our own sake, not our own selfishness or vengefulness. So what Peter is doing in this text is he's pointing us away from the world and again toward Jesus as he's been doing <laughs> Because it's the only way to live. It's the only way to actually behold our king and to declare his goodness is with this free, unabandoned following of all of his ways, of this radical love, loving in a way that just like it was 2,000 years ago is transformative for any community to see an individual love, act upon, not just proclaim with their words, but act upon someone who is actively hurting, despising, doing evil to them against their very way of life, to actually act upon that person's good. That is the transformative way of Jesus, and that is what Peter is calling us to. He's calling us to a wholly transformed character, way of relating to people. As theologian and professor of New Testament, Karen Jobes, puts it, what Peter's calling us to here is a transformed character of a people who refuse to allow their enemies to define them, but who seek their definition in Christ. Please pray with me, church. God, please help us. We, we need you. We cannot do this on our own. Because if we're honest, we, we often don't want to do this on our own. It's, it's scary and it's vulnerable. And you know this, Jesus. You know this. And yet you did this. To, to, so help us, please. Please help us to be like you and to live like you by your spirit. Be with us in, in our coming and our going. Guard and encourage us by your spirit for your glory and for your name's sake. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.